We're turning our attention today to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. These are the closing words. This is the closing section of Paul's first letter to the young church that he founded a few months earlier in Thessalonica. And he's writing from Corinth, having traveled on further from there, having founded a church. And this is the seventh and final message in a series, a sermon series at Church of the Cross on this first letter to the Thessalonians. So if you have your Bible, please open up to 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, it's not a surprise that in this closing section, we get to the heart, again, of what this letter is all about. A heart which has been apparent throughout the letter. Um, Look at verse 23. This is Paul's prayer. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's longing for this young church is that they may be sanctified completely. They may be made holy. This is the aim of his apostolic love throughout this letter, a love that is personal, as we saw, and sacrificial in weeks gone by, a love that's modeled on the love of God for all of us. To be holy or to be sanctified is what it means to walk, this is back in chapter 2, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In chapter 4, verse 3, he says holiness is God's will for them. And then in, chap- in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says that the will of God, the call of God on their lives is not for impurity, but in holiness. And Paul's prayer and heart here in verse 23 at the end match what we saw of his heart and prayer in the only other time in this letter that he opens up in prayer, which is at the end of chapter 3, where he prays that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. That is Paul's great hope for this young church. And in many ways, as we listen in on this letter, the great hope that the Spirit of God is communicating to us through this letter is the same, is that it would grow into greater degrees of holiness, of sanctification, to walk in a manner worthy of the God who has called them. Now, Paul's hope for this reality to come about is clear in verse 23 by the fact that he's praying. He's praying to God, and we'll come back to this at the end of our time together this morning. But notice that God's hope, in, that Paul's hope in, in the ultimate agency of God to bring about their holiness does not preclude, but rather calls forth Paul's apostolic encouragement, teaching, and exhortation, which is the substance of this letter. In other words, this kind of exhortation, teaching, and encouragement is the regular God-appointed means by which the church becomes what God longs for it to be, which is his holy people, shining his lights in the world around them. So up to this point, Paul has called them to chastity, as we saw in chapter 4, to charity, to grieve with hope, to live as children of the day. Last week, anticipating the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, as a day of salvation and deliverance. And all of these things are meant to encourage this ultimate desire for holiness that Paul longs for in them. And then now, as Paul turns to this final section, he does some work Uh, of addressing a few more areas related to this desire for them to grow to holiness. Dealing with their relationships to leaders, their relationship to one another, 
in their relationship to God. And that's what we're going to look at before we get to soar back up to the top of Mount Everest um, at the end of this letter. So look with me at verses 12 and 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Oops, sorry, that was a different verse. Um, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Paul deals with their relationship to leaders, and the gist of what he says is this, respect your leaders and esteem them highly in love. Don't, on the one hand, despise them. Don't, on the other hand, idolize them, but respect them. Now, what does he say that leaders do? And remember, this relationship between leaders and the people is meant for the encouragement of the church that the church might grow to holiness. He says they labor among you. That's the first thing he says about them. That's a term that connotes hard work, usually reserved for manual labor occupations. So leaders, pastors are to work hard, to not be lazy, but to take up this work of shepherding God's flock with strength and energy that comes from God himself which means studying hard and preparing sermons, counseling people, preparing people for baptism and marriage, extending God's grace to the sick and suffering, being committed to and diligent in prayer, among many other things. It means to be, uh, in, to be engaged in exhausting labor for the sake of the body, to equip the saints, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, for the work of ministry. The role of leaders is faithful stewardship pouring one's life out for the sake of the body. A few years ago, I was reading 2 Corinthians 5, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, just 2 Corinthians, and I got to chapter 12, and I was really struck by this verse in which Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That, I think, should be the motto of every pastor. I will most gladly spend and be spent. That's what the image that's conjured up by this word to labor among you. This is, laborness, this is labor for the holiness of the church. Paul also says that they are over you in the Lord. And while this implies a position of authority, we need to hear this within the context of Jesus' teaching on leadership. He says that the true leader is the slave of all, is marked by humility, and uses one's position like Jesus did as a platform for self-sacrifice and self-giving for the sake of others. John Stott, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, points out that this verb is applied to a variety of officials, superintendents, village heads, or chiefs, landlords, estate managers, and guardians of children, in all of which the notions of leading and caring seem to be combined. And it was used of Christian leaders as well in 1 Timothy 3, of Christian elders, So the main focus of this phrase that they are over you in the Lord is actually on the efforts of these leaders for the salvation and sanctification of the church and not on rank or position, which would, of course, be consistent with Jesus' own teaching on leadership. And then Paul also says that leaders admonish you in verse 12. Admonish you. That's the work of love, of calling someone out of a behavior that is damaging or harmful or a lifestyle or a pattern. It has a strong ethical component and means counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. This is the work of the shepherd's staff, correcting the sheep and calling them into the narrow way that leads to life. This is a part of the pastor's work. But it is, of course, done with humility and gentleness and not with any sense of harshness or superiority. 
One of the reasons I love preaching book by book or passage by passage is because this wouldn't normally be a topic I would choose and assign for myself to teach on, but here it is in the text. And it's helpful for us as a church to think about this for a moment. It's really interesting to see this is 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is very early in the history of the church that at this very early point, there are already this role of leaders who are called for the sake of building up and strengthening the body. Godly pastors are meant to advance the holiness of God's people. That hasn't always been the case, of course. Often it's been quite the contrary. And goodness knows that any pastor knows his own shortcomings and will ask with Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, who is sufficient for these things, for this role? But leaders are to live out this call with faithfulness. And this is to benefit and strengthen the body, the church. And the people of the church are called then, in light of this task that's given to those who are in leadership, they're called to respect the leaders who are doing this work, as verse 12 says. Now, that doesn't mean not to challenge them or to exhort them or not to critique them or not to check what they do and say against God's word. Those are all good and holy things to do in the context of love in a church body because leaders are just like lay people in that they are sinners saved by grace and there needs to be a mutual exhortation going on in the body of Christ. But it does mean, as Paul says, to esteem them highly in love because of their work. Now you can take because of their work in a couple of ways. One is because of the significance and importance of this work of laboring for the sake of the growth of holiness of God's people. And I think that would be a fair way to interpret this phrase. But I think another way that you can interpret this phrase is because of their work, because they're in way over their heads, because no one is sufficient for these things, because they know their own shortcomings and how difficult this is. So esteem them highly in love. Support them in that work that they are doing to see our community grow to maturity in Christ. And this will lead, in the end of verse 13, to being at peace as leaders and members of God's local church body pursue their equally important vocations of ministry that are mutually reinforcing, strengthening the body, growing it to holiness in God's kingdom. So that's the first subject that Paul tackles here as he moves through three successive relationships, relationships with leaders. Secondly, relationships with one another, verses 14 and 15. So let's see what he says here. To this he called you, sorry, I did the same thing. (laughs) Uh, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. We're called here to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. And we are called to do that. It's interesting, in verse 12, he says that leaders are, are, are called to admonish the body. But in verse 14, he says, we are called to admonish together the idol, in this case, to encourage together the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with all. Here's one of the things I want you to see from, from these two verses. There are challenges in the life of the local church. That is to say, the church includes the idle, includes the faint-hearted, includes the weak, and includes people who do evil to one another. How's that for encouragement about what the church is? 
There's this really funny moment in Eugene Peterson's memoir, The Pastor, where he describes being a young man setting out to plant a church outside of Baltimore, which became the place that he served and labored in the Lord for about 30 years. But this is at the outset. And he, he says this about his youthful approach to this job. He says, one of the attractions for Jan, that's his wife, for Jan and me in accepting this assignment to organize a new congregation was the prospect of forming a church of disciplined and committed Christians, focused and energetic. I think I had the image of a congregation of Green Berets for Jesus, no half-Christians, no almost-Christians, but the real thing. And then a few months passed, and God had drawn together a hodgepodge group of about 50 people meeting in his basement, among whom he says there were no Green Berets. And Peterson says this, As I was getting to know these men and women and children, I realized that nearly everything that I had imagined or expected in the formation of church was wrong. I have a lot of remedial learning ahead of me. All of this means this, if you're sitting here today and you don't feel like you're a Green Beret Christian. You belong here. That the church is for you. For all of us none of whom could take on the title of Green Beret Christian. We are all idle at times, weak at times, faint-hearted at times, and we all do wrong to one another at times. And it's encouraging to note that. It's encouraging because churches like ours, like any church, struggle. We wrestle We have these ideals and this vision. We hear these exhortations of Paul, which are beautiful and holy and good, and we realize our own shortcomings and our wrestlings, our struggles with doubt and despair and weak wills and temptations. And it's encouraging to hear Paul say that early on in this young church to whom he's writing, I want you to be holy and blameless at the day of Christ Jesus, that there are these things going on in their midst because these things are going on in our midst and in our lives. And so what does Paul say about this? He says we deal with these realities not by being harsh, not by saying, look, the bar is here, and if you can't get there, get out. But he says we do it by being patient with all. How is Jesus described through the prophet Isaiah? A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. The gentleness, the patience of Jesus is to mark the congregations that come under his lordship. And we together are to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, and to help the weak, and to exercise patience, and to respond with goodness when we are wronged against. That's an amazingly beautiful calling because I guarantee you that we all can affirm that one day we are on one side of this and another day or week or year we're on another side of this. And Paul says, I want your relationships with one another to be marked by this kind of patience. And then to include genuine admonishment. So these exhortations of 1 Thessalonians are, really, are, are important and, and, and meant to be targeted at a community just like this. Encouragement, help for one another. It's a beautiful picture of a church where the strong and the weak, and we're, we're all moving between those categories, are helping one another to grow to maturity in Christ. 
So third, Paul deals with our relationship to God. And this one is perhaps a little bit harder to see, but it's there in verses 16 through 22. There's a lot that goes on in these verses. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. We must initially hear these exhortations as to the individual, but it's really important to note that these are in the plural. They're aimed at the community. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And because they're targeted toward the body, it's quite likely, especially since something like prophecy is mentioned, that that's aimed at when the church is gathered together as a group, as a community, as a people, and, in their, and engaging with, as we are right now, with the living God. These first three exhortations, Paul says, are faithful responses to God's initiative to us in Jesus, God's word of grace and gospel to us. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. As a gathered community, we're to be rejoicing in the salvation of God. Now, I guarantee that not all of you walked in this morning and felt joyful or felt like rejoicing. And part of what Paul is saying here is that we, as the people of God, as we are together, are to rejoice always. When we come together, we respond to the goodness of God's grace and mercy in Jesus through rejoicing. And so we open up with praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love for us. We rejoice in him. We pray when we gather. That's a response to God. God spoke first. We speak back and we pray. We petition. We praise. We engage. We commune with him. That's what prayer is. And when we gather together, we're exercising that communion with God that is to define the Christian life. And we give thanks. It's no surprise then that the main act of Christian worship, the sacrament of the, of the, of the body and blood of Jesus, is referred to in the church as the Eucharist by sh- in shorthand, which means to give thanks, from the Greek verb to give thanks. That's defining of what we do when we gather together. We give thanks to God for all that he has blessed us with and given to us. And then we get to verse 19, do not quench the spirit. It's possible to take this verse with those three verses that have just come before, that not quenching the spirit means that together we rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And that's, I think, a helpful way to see verse 19. But this verse can also move toward the verses that follow in verses 20 through 22. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Okay, this raises a lot of questions, which you'll be glad to know I'm not going to try to address right now. But what it does say is that when God's people are gathered together, we not only respond to his word in rejoicing, in praying, and in giving thanks, but we also are attentive to and open to his word coming to us through one another by the power of the Holy Spirit in, yes, something called the gift of prophecy, which in the early church is distinguished from the capital P prophets who join with the apostles to form the foundation that the church is built on. But there is this gift Prophecy, New Testament prophecy, is understood as an incisive word coming through one of God's children that's directly aimed and targeted at a particular community or body that's spoken in a kind of fresh way, always meant to be subsumed to the apostolic word that we're reading throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, and that Paul then in verse 27 says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read before all of the church. So yes, these 
prophetic words are meant to be subsumed under and consistent with the apostolic word, which is now for us the inscriptured word of God. But we're told not to despise them, to be open to his word, God speaking to his people through his people. Certainly, we have room to grow in this area, as does perhaps all of the church. And it would be wonderful to see this kind of work of these prophetic words of encouragement and exhortation coming through one another as a, as a sign and testimony to the life of God in a community. Not only when we gather in neighborhood groups or when we gather for coffee or lunch or in triads, but also even when we gather in moments like this. And that would be a point I would encourage us to pray through as a community coming out of this text. But this right relationship with God, one of responding rightly to his word, one of being open to his word so that we can test everything he says because some prophets have their own agenda or their pet issues and that's not a word for us. So test it. Then when you've tested it, you can hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. You can hold to the good and grow deeper in holiness. So these three things, kind of down in the weeds as Paul's wrapping up his letter, are meant to encourage the church in right relationship to its leaders, in right relationship with one another, in right relationship to God himself, to grow deeper in this holiness that Paul then erupts in verse 23 as we come to a close. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Soul and spirit and body, um, what Paul means is all of you. This is not about whether we're tripartite or dipartite, as has the conversation been. Uh, But all of you, that you could be completely and wholly sanctified and blameless when Jesus returns. He picks up that theme of hope that we've been on for the last couple of weeks. And then he says, and this this is the summit of this whole series. Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Okay, just take these three issues that we just talked about. Leaders, one another, the strong and the weak, and the challenges in community. Prophecies and hearing the word and responding. There is so much challenge in all three of those areas for all of us. And we know how challenging that is. Paul writes with such conviction. Paul lives with such conviction. Paul preaches with such conviction. Paul writes these letters with such conviction. He exhorts the church to holiness with such conviction because he knows and believes in the God that has met him on the Damascus Road, a God that he has encountered, that has literally changed his life, turned his life upside down, and sent him on a new trajectory for all of his days until his death. And Paul believes this so deeply that this God who has met his people's needs in the sending of his son Jesus, who's demonstrated his faithfulness to the covenant that he made with Abraham so long ago, who's finally beginning that new and climactic work of bringing his kingdom to pass in hodgepodge, non-green beret groups like this little church in Thessalonica. He's so confident in this God and this God's power to bring about what he has started in the gospel of Jesus, that he writes with conviction and he lives with conviction and he calls you and me to also embrace this conviction, not because we know our own weakness. Of course we do. And Paul in 1 Timothy 1 says, I'm the chief of sinners. He knows his own weakness as well. We are very very familiar with our own weakness and our own church's weaknesses. But Paul says, my confidence rests not in me, 
and not in this church body, and not in the weak and the faint-hearted and the idle that make up this church body, and not in those who are struggling with a thorn in their flesh as Paul was in this church body, but my confidence rests in the God who originated this whole thing. And what Paul says in verse 24 is a summation of what Paul says at the highest of high points in the New Testament in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? By all things, Paul didn't mean health and wealth now, because he goes on to mention naked and famine and persecution and danger and sword. These are not circumstances that we would look at and say they're victorious and conquering Green Beret types. But Paul says he'll give us all things. What does he mean? He means he'll give us everything that we need to grow to holiness in God's life. And he's faithful. He's given his son. He won't withhold anything that we need as a church body at Church of the Cross. He won't withhold anything that you need as a man, woman, or child in Jesus to grow to holiness and blamelessness at that coming day. Yes, sometimes it feels circuitous. And yes, sometimes it feels forsaken. But the reality is Paul's words in verse 24 should be a deep encouragement to each one of us this morning. He who calls you is faithful. And because of that characteristic of the God of heaven and earth, who started this whole thing, remember this whole series began with Paul, the letter begins with Paul encouraging them, this God is at work among you. He's moving in you to move in faith and hope and love. Because he is faithful, this will happen. He will surely do it. And we can take tremendous hope in that. Wherever it is that we walk in this morning, however discouraged we might be, however far leaning into the faint-hearted, the weak, and the idle that we feel, Paul says to them and to all of us, he is faithful. The one who called you into holiness And he will surely do it. So be encouraged as we take up, as we put down now this letter, the heart of which is to grow to holiness, that he will do it. Through these messy relationships, through these kinds of exhortations, through this kind of heart of love that he expresses and that we are called then to express to one another. That's what it means to be the church. Beautiful, good, wonderful adventure backed by the faithfulness of the God who's at the heart of this whole thing. Amen.